In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I told you, Julie, this week, out of all the topics from the Sermon on the Mount to preach on, why did the pastor assign me the passage on worry? Uh, You have heard the old adage that when you point a finger at somebody else, you're pointing, let's see, three back at yourself. Well, it could not be more true when it comes to this topic. Uh, Even this week, I found myself lying awake at one or two in the morning thinking about a world of things and forcing my mind and heart to focus on this passage and its truths, and I have found peace and comfort in them, as I pray you do this morning as well. I think that I'm not alone in struggling with worry. My guess is everyone in the room does, at least at some time. Linda Carroll recently wrote an article called American Anxiety, Why Are We Such a Nervous Nation? She said, we have become a very tense and anxious nation. Millions of us are kept awake at night by racing thoughts and are so edgy during the day that our blood pressure skyrockets and our hearts pound even though there's no real threat in sight. Over the past three decades, anxiety disorders have jumped more than 1,200% with as many as 117 million Americans reporting high levels of anxiety. Some experts point to our high-paced, stressful lifestyle as feeding fear and issuing in this new age of anxiety. Dr. Nancy Snyderman said, I think we're looking at almost the perfect storm. One of the things I appreciated about the article is that it candidly admitted that it's in part our warped sense of priorities that fuels this anxiety. 
Article continues, the jump in anxiety diagnoses has been linked to the modern American fast-paced lifestyle and the drive to get ahead. One big driving force for anxiety, said psychiatrist Gail Seltz, is the gap between our high expectations and our ability to fulfill them. People are constantly asking themselves, how am I going to make it financially? How am I going to be as successful as I feel I should be? Been there? Now, let me be honest that anxiety has a number of potential causes. Sometimes anxiety is caused by medical problems, like a problem with the endocrine system or a hormonal imbalance. That is very, very real. And if suddenly you find anxiety skyrocketing that you've not experienced in the past, you probably need to see a doctor and get that checked out. But let me be very blunt. The anxiety that most of us in this room struggle with doesn't have a medical cause. It has a spiritual cause. The cause is that we simply do not have the trust in Almighty God that he has called us to have. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus diagnoses our problem with anxiety, and then he prescribes the proper treatment. And the treatment is to trade our wringing hands for folded hands to trade our pacing for praying, to trade our reliance on ourself and our worrying to take care of our problems and to trust God wholly and completely instead. Now, as the Lord Jesus diagnoses our problem with anxiety, he says that there are normally three root causes. Worry is often the result of misplaced priorities. Worry is often the result of a misplaced faith or trust. And worry is often the result of a misplaced focus in life. First of all, he says, worry is the result of misplaced priorities. It's typically grounded in us valuing earthly things more than heavenly things. Notice that before the Lord begins to specifically challenge our worry, beginning in verse 25, he first addressed one of the fundamental causes of our anxiety. He begins verse 25 with the phrase, therefore, don't worry, or because of this, don't worry. What is the cause for addressing the problem of worry that he's pointing to? Well, it's this discussion in the immediately preceding context beginning in verse 19 where the Lord Jesus deals with having proper priorities as a Christian disciple, valuing heavenly things above earthly things and so forth. And so when the Lord Jesus says, because of this, don't worry, he's saying if you get your priorities straight, worry will flee from you. Now, what are the proper priorities? Well, first of all, the Lord Jesus informs us that we should focus on the heavenly and not on the earthly. He explains that heaven's treasures are far more durable than earthly things. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why not? Well, there are several problems. Number one, 
Moths destroy them. Believe it or not, in Bible times, most people lived at a subsistence level, and the most valuable things they possessed, it, possessed other than their homes were the clothes that they wore on their backs. Unfortunately, those clothes were often made out of hand-spun wool. And if you've ever had a wool garment that you stored away for a season and didn't properly mothball it or whatever you do, you know what can happen. Practically overnight, the larva of a moth can destroy those garments that these ancient people so treasured. The Lord says that's a temporary transient treasure. Don't value it. And not only do our earthly treasures get destroyed by moths, they also get destroyed by vermin. Now, some Bible translations say, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth or rust destroy. But the fact is, the word rust, brosis in Greek, never refers to rust in ancient Greek literature. It always refers instead to the eaters. And eaters was a reference to vermin ranging from rats to locusts that could attack food stores and destroy them practically overnight. You probably have read in the Old Testament about swarms of locusts that would come down and invade a field and strip every vine of its grapes and strip every stalk of its grains, completely wiping out the food that the people of God depended upon. And the Lord Jesus says... If you've not been treasuring your clothes, you poor people of Israel, you've probably been treasuring your food stores that you're depending on getting you through the winter or carrying you through a period of prolonged doubt. But he said, be informed. That's risky. Those things aren't guaranteed to last. They're here one moment, gone the next, and vermin can destroy that which you have relied upon in the blink of an eye. Some people thought, well, sure, my earthly treasures like my clothes and my food are very, very transient and temporary, but I've got my gold and silver coins. Vermin aren't going to eat them up. The malls aren't going to devour them. But the Lord Jesus reminds us that those are risky investments too. He says because thieves can dig through and steal. The walls of ancient homes were made out of what we might call adobe, mud and mud that had been hardened with straw, with sticks, and a thief could literally dig through the wall of your home, reach his hand in, and grab your most precious treasures, and they would be gone in an instant. So the Lord Jesus is saying, even those treasures that you think are so lasting and enduring may be gone far sooner than you think. So he says, don't treasure these things. Treasure something that is lasting and enduring, and that is nothing on this earth. It's only the treasure that can be accumulated in heaven. He says, treasure for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and the vermin can't destroy and where thieves can't break through and steal. Our heavenly investments are not risky. They are absolutely secure, and no one can strip them from our hands. What are these heavenly treasures that he's referring to? Well, that takes us back to the first half of Matthew chapter 6. 
Remember the Lord Jesus taught his disciples that it's great to do the right thing, but you've got to do the right thing for the right reason. Yes, you need to pray, you need to fast, you need to give, but never for human applause, always for God's glory and pleasure. But the Lord Jesus says, when you do the right thing for the right reason, what's the result? He says it three times, Matthew 6, 4, 6, 6, 6, 18. He says, the father who sees in secret will reward you. The treasures in heaven are these heavenly rewards that the Lord Jesus has stored away for our future as we have served him faithfully and obediently. And the Lord Jesus says people can take away everything you've got in this earth, but that is something they can never touch. It is guaranteed that is where your priorities must lie. And the Lord Jesus said one of the reasons it's important to check our priorities is because those priorities indicate what really fills our heart. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And his point is that if you treasure earthly things, whether it's gold, silver, clothes, food, your heart really belongs to those things. But what is the fundamental commandment of the Old Testament? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart. All your heart. Not some, not part, all. That if our heart wholly and completely belongs to God, there is no room in it for the love of these earthly things. The Lord Jesus goes on to warn us that idolatry of material things has the potential to corrupt every facet of our lives. Now, I'll admit that verses 22 and 23 are a bit more difficult than some of the other truths in this passage. But if you'll go with me back in time to the era of the Lord Jesus, it becomes pretty clear what Christ is saying. He says... If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is sick, literally if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now it just so happens that in Bible times, the healthy eye was used as a symbol for having material things in proper perspective. Clinging to earthly stuff so loosely that you were willing to be generous and share it with others who were in need. But the evil eye or the sick eye represented being greedy and miserly and stingy. Now that might not make a lot of sense to us, but we do a similar thing. We use parts of the body to refer to generosity and stinginess, don't we? We tend to associate it with the hand though rather than with the eye. If a person is generous, we say they are open-handed. If a person is stingy or greedy, we say they are tight-fisted or they have sticky fingers. Well, just as we associate greed and generosity with the hand, the ancients associated greed and generosity with the eyes. Notice this. Jesus also uses the symbols of light and darkness. 
Light is a symbol for what is holy and good and righteous in the Bible. And darkness is a symbol for what is evil, what is wicked and sinful. So when Christ says, if your eye is healthy, your body will be full of light, what he's saying is, if you hold material things in proper perspective, you don't treasure them and you're willing to share them with people who are in need, Your whole life is going to be full of holiness and righteousness and goodness. Getting your perspective on material things right is a key to your sanctification, in other words. But if your eye is evil, you're stingy, greedy, miserly, treasure earthly things instead of heavenly things, your whole body is going to be full of darkness that is your whole spiritual life will be corrupted until it is saturated with wickedness and sinfulness. It's a warning that we need to take very, very seriously. I think that the Apostle Paul may have actually had these words of the Lord Jesus in mind when he penned this warning in 1 Timothy 6. He said, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. You'll remember this next one. For the love of money is what? A root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many griefs. Christ says we have got to get material things and money and so forth in proper perspective or it can eat away our very soul. Christ continues that the maker, not mammon, must be our master. He says you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is an Aramaic word that refers to money and earthly possessions. But Christ says no man can serve two masters. He's going to love one and hate the other, honor one and despise the other. And what he's pointing out is that if you try to serve Christ and you try to serve earthly stuff and building a bank account and all that at the same time, it won't work. You can't hold those two competing priorities in equal balance. One will overwhelm the other. Either your love for Christ will stamp out your love for the things of this world or your love for the things of this world will stamp out your love for Christ. My native Mississippi is what you might call kudzu country. Uh, In the 1800s, they were concerned about erosion in northeast Mississippi, and they introduced kudzu from Asia. You know what that is around here? It's this vine that takes root, and it just takes over everything. It spreads like wildfire. Uh, The biologists say that a kudzu vine can grow as much as seven feet in a single week, and it's everywhere where I come from. And unfortunately, as it takes over everything, it kills everything. Because the leaves of the kudzu are so broad that they block the light from whatever is covered by the vine. Killing off the native grasses, choking the very life out of sometimes even enormous oak trees. And what the Lord Jesus is warning us is that a love for earthly things is like kudzu. 
We might think we can keep it under control, but we will soon find that it dominates us. Get it started, and it will take over. Give it a little bit of time, and it will fill our souls with darkness. Christ said, I've shown you what the bad priorities are. Let me show you what proper priorities are. In chapter 6, verse 33, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Here are the top priorities of the follower of Jesus Christ. Number one, he says, Seek the kingdom first. The kingdom is a reference to the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ over the earth when he comes back in all of his great glory in the second coming. And we have two eternal options for our destiny. We can be admitted into that kingdom where Christ reigns or we can be sentenced to an eternity in hell. Christ says, entering this kingdom must be priority number one. It matters more than anything else. There are a lot of things you shouldn't be worried or anxious about, but this is worthy of some anxiety. If you are not certain that this kingdom will be your eternal home, it is cause for great alarm. It is reason to be tossing and turning on your bed tonight. Your eternity hinges on this issue. Now, how is it that we enter this eternal kingdom of our Savior? Matthew chapter 7 is going to tell us about it. People stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and seek entrance into this kingdom, and two things are required. One of them is that they confess that Jesus is Lord. This means in part that Jesus is our boss, our ruler, our master. We have surrendered to his authority and he rules over us. But it means equally importantly that Jesus is our God. The word Lord is a title for deity throughout the Old Testament. It used to refer to Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And so when a Christian disciple confesses that Jesus is Lord, they're saying he is none other than God Almighty, Jehovah God in the body of a man. That confession is not all that's important. Because some are going to make that confession with their mouth, but they're going to demonstrate by their lives that that confession was not sincere. So we must not only seek to enter the kingdom by confession of Jesus as Lord, but by having lives that are characterized by righteousness. See, if we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, not only will our sins be forgiven, our lives will be changed. Period. The Old Testament says that when the Messiah comes, he's going to write God's law on his people's heart so that they naturally and spontaneously do the righteous things that God has commanded. The prophet Ezekiel said it a little bit differently. He said that the Messiah is going to put his Holy Spirit within us and the Holy Spirit will move us, cause us to keep his commandments and fulfill his 
ordinances. So the true disciple of Jesus Christ is not only rescued from the penalty of sin, he is rescued from the power of sin. He lives life a new and different way. So the Lord Jesus says, your top priorities need to be the kingdom and righteousness. The righteousness that only Christ can produce in you. Your top priorities need to be heaven and holiness, not your earthly happiness. After explaining to us how worry is often the result of misplaced priorities, he goes on to explain that worry is often the result of a misplaced faith. Trust in ourselves rather than dependence on God. Notice that in verse 28, the Lord Jesus asked the question, Why do you worry? We don't have to scratch our heads and wonder what the proper response to that question is because after asking, why do you worry, Christ himself answers the question for us two verses later in verse 30. There he describes his disciples as you of little faith. We worry so much because our faith is so small. Our worry indicates that we either doubt God's power, we doubt God's compassion, or we doubt God's knowledge. And dealing with our worry entails a rediscovery of who God is and the reality that we can depend on Him. First of all, the Lord Jesus says that worry doubts God's power. Christ begins by challenging our worry and reminding us that life is greater than food, verse 25, and the body is greater than clothing. This is a form of argument that the rabbis like to use called the argument from the greater to the lesser. And this is how it works. If God can do a big thing, well, surely God can do a little thing. If God can do something that is amazing and miraculous, then surely he can do something that is more trivial. So when he says the life is greater than food, he's saying, look, God gave you life. In the Garden of Eden, God knelt in the dust, forms man's body from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and made him a living soul. God performed the miracle of human creation. If he can create us, surely he can provide for us. If he can grant the gift of life, surely he can supply the necessary provisions to sustain life. Then he says the, the body is more than clothes. If God can wrap human flesh around your bones... He can surely wrap cotton or wool over your skin. If God is capable of doing the greater thing, he is more than capable of doing the lesser thing. 
Christ calls us to remember the omnipotence of the Almighty, the fact that all power rests in his hand. If he can perform the miracle of creation and procreation, he can provide for us even miraculously too. Maybe it's manna from heaven. Maybe it's quail from the sky. Maybe it's your clothes and sandals don't wear out the entire 40 years like we see in the Old Testament wilderness wanderings. Maybe it's by taking the loaves and fish and feeding the thousands. God is more than capable of providing for our needs. But worry acts like we can't really trust God's power. We need to trust our own abilities to provide for ourselves. And if we can just wring our hands enough, if we can just bite our nails enough, if we can just toss and turn on our beds at night enough, then somehow everything will be taken care of. So Christ reminds us that we are impotent to take care of ourselves, completely unable to do so. Verse 27, he says, Which of you by worrying is able to add even one hour to his life. Do you really think that by all this worrying, you're going to guarantee that you'll live longer? Even back in Bible times, they knew what medical science has proven today. Anxiety and worry don't prolong life. They actually shorten life. Worrying about your earthly life is not effective. It is completely counterproductive. So why do the worry? doesn't help one bit. It only hurts in the long run. Christ says, abandon this dependence on self and put your faith wholly in God. Not only does worry doubt God's power, worry doubts God's compassion. Some people might think, well, I know that the God of the universe is more than capable of providing for my needs. Maybe he just doesn't care about sinful old me enough to do so. The Lord Jesus addresses this too. Uh, Now the Lord Jesus turns the argument the other way. He's argued if God can do the great thing, he can surely do the less thing. Now he's going to argue that if God does the lesser thing, he'll, he'll surely do the greater thing. He says, look at the birds of the air. God feeds them, even though they don't have the ability to farm for themselves. Look at the grass of the field. God clothes it, even they don't have the ability to spin thread and weave fabric and sew it into garments. And then he says, aren't you worth far more to God than they? Aren't you far more valuable to the Almighty than they? If God cares enough about the grass of the field that's here today and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he take care of your needs, O you of little faith? If God cares enough about the grass of the field and the birds of the air to clothe and feed them, surely he cares enough about his own children to provide for their needs. If you should ever doubt that God would love you enough to provide for you and your needs, you need look no farther than Calvary to settle the issue. We are sinful people, 
We have broken God's laws. We have defied God's authority. And if we got what we deserved, we would suffer his eternal condemnation. But God loved us so much that he sent his own son into the world to live the perfect life that we can't live. To go to the cross and be nailed there, suffering the punishment for our sins and our place so that we could escape that punishment. And whenever we are tempted to doubt the love of God for us, the scripture says you need look no farther than the cross. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Or Paul, God demonstrated his love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If God loved us so much that he would not spare his own son from the cross, but would gladly sacrifice him in our behalf, surely he cares enough to put food on our tables and clothes on our backs. Sometimes worry doubts God's power. Sometimes worry doubts God's compassion. Sometimes worry doubts God's knowledge. Maybe you think, well, I know God's powerful enough to meet my needs. I know he cares, but, I mean, there are a lot of people running around in the universe all crying out to him for help. What assurance do I have that he would ever give ear to my pleas? Notice that the Lord Jesus says in verse 32, don't worry about these things like food and clothing that the Gentiles seek after. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Every cry he hears, every plea gets his attention. He's unaware, not unaware of the growling stomach. He's not ignorant of the parched tongue. He's not blind to the threadbare clothes. He is attentive to our needs. Why do you worry, Christ said? Here's the answer, you're people of little faith. And Christ calls us to trade our little faith for a greater faith, a faith that trusts God's power, his compassion, and his knowledge of our needs. And finally, and very briefly, the Lord Jesus warns that worry is often the result of a misplaced focus, focusing on tomorrow rather than on today. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, there are just a couple of things I want to mention briefly here. Notice, first of all, that the Lord Jesus candidly admitted that the life of his disciples would not be trouble-free. When he says each day has enough trouble of its own, he's saying you will have trouble in this world. But worry is not going to be a solution to it. Worry is not going to make the problems of the future go away. We respond to difficulty with faith, not with anxiety. Now, there are some people who dare say that worry does work. 
Dr. Adrian Rogers once preached a sermon from this passage, and afterwards a lady came up and said, I was offended that you said that worry was ineffective and counterproductive. I want you to know it does work. There are tons of things I've worried about in my life, and not a single one of them has ever happened. She was a little mixed up, though, because she thought that her worry made it all go away when, in fact, her worry was needless. Those things were never going to happen anyway. And she spent all of her time fretting and fussing and biting her nails all to no effect. Christ says, because each day has enough trouble of its own, don't borrow trouble from the morrow. Deal with the issues of today. Focus on the present rather than on the future. One day at a time. Now that might sound like a contradiction to what Christ had said a little bit earlier because earlier he said don't focus on this earthly life but focus on eternal life which sounds like don't focus on the present, focus on the future. Now he comes and he says, focus on today, not tomorrow, which sounds like a contradiction. You see my point. But actually, Christ has two completely different timelines in mind. On the one hand, he's got in mind an eternal timeline, without beginning, without end. And he says, on that infinite timeline, your focus needs to be on eternal life, not earthly life. But here he addresses a second timeline, what we might call the timeline of history, the timeline of earthly existence. And he says on that timeline, your focus needs to be on today and not on tomorrow. One day at a time. And if you think through your own life, if you've lived very long and seen much sorrow, you will recognize that the things you encountered that were most, dif- most difficult in life were the things that caught you completely by surprise anyway, weren't they? And all the worrying in the world could not have prevented them from happening. Spare yourself that woe. Focus on today. And Christ says that ultimately most of our worries don't have a medical cause. They have a spiritual cause. The issue is a matter of warped priorities, misplaced faith, misplaced focus in life. So he urges us, stop wringing your hands. Start folding your hands. Stop your pacing, start your praying. Give up this sinful reliance on yourself and trust God today and every day. I love the old hymn, O Four Thousand Tongues. It's a verse that says, Jesus, the name that calms my fears, that bids my sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. The old hymn writer said it well. If you want your fears calmed, if you want your sorrows ceased, if you want a life that is characterized by peace, then Jesus is the only answer. The Apostle Paul penned the immortal words, Do not be anxious about anything. 
but in every situation, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understandings will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Trust your cares to him. Do you bow your heads and close your eyes? The Apostle Peter wrote, Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Would you do that right now? now? Some of us have reason for anxiety. Some of us have reason to be disturbed and alarmed. Because today might be taken care of, but eternity has not been. You might feel very content that tomorrow will be okay. But when you die and when Christ comes again, your destiny is not secure. I urge you to put your faith for eternity in Jesus. Confess that you are a sinner who needs forgiveness. Thank him for dying on the cross for your sins and your place. And ask him to be your Lord in every sense of the word, both your master and your God. And when you trust Jesus as your God, your Savior, your King, you can then have the peace I've described, that heaven will be eternal home, that every sin you've committed has been erased from God's sight, and that you're no longer the enemy of God, but the friend and child of God. And most of us here made that decision a long, long time ago, but if truth be known that we found it easy to trust eternity to Jesus. It's today and tomorrow that we've found difficult to trust Him. And we've become people who are characterized more by anxiety than by true biblical faith. Would you ask God to grant you the faith to conquer your worries? Sometimes when I'm overwhelmed with anxiety... And I recognize how small my faith really is. I find myself praying the prayer of the Father and the Gospels who came to Jesus, trusting Jesus to perform a miracle and saying, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but I know it's a weak and deficient faith. Strengthen it by your power. And the God who granted you faith in the first place will build it and grow it by His grace.